Chapter 3 Signor Vitalis' Company That night I dreamed that I had been taken to the home. When I opened my eyes in the early morning, I could scarcely believe that I was still there in my little bed. I felt the bed and pinched my arms to see if it were true. And yes, I was still with Mother Barbaran. She said nothing to me all the morning, and I began to think that they had given up the idea of sending me away. Perhaps she had said that she was determined to keep me. But when midday came, Barberin told me to put on my cap and follow him. I looked at Mother Barberin to implore her to help me. Without her husband noticing, she made me a sign to go with him. I obeyed. She tapped me on the shoulder as I passed her to let me know that I had nothing to fear. Without a word, I followed him. It was some distance from our house to the village, a good hour's walk. Barberin never said a word to me the whole way. He walked along, limping. Now and again he turned round to see if I was falling. Where was he taking me? I asked myself the question again and again. Despite the reassuring sign that Mother Barberin had made, I felt that something was going to happen to me, and I wanted to run away. I tried to lag behind, thinking that I would jump down into a ditch where Barberin could not catch me. At first he had seemed satisfied that I should tramp along just behind him, on his heels, but he evidently soon began to suspect what I intended to do, and he grabbed me by the wrist. I was forced to keep up with him. This was the way we entered the village. Everyone who passed us turned round to stare, for I looked like a bad dog held on a leash. As we were about to pass the tavern, a man who was standing in the doorway called to Barberin and asked him to go in. Barberin took me by the ear and pushed me in before him, and when we got inside he closed the door. I felt relieved. This was only the village tavern, and for a long time I had wanted to see what it was like inside. I had often wondered what was going on behind the red curtains. I was going to know now. Barberin sat down at the table with the boss who had asked him to go in. I sat by the fireplace. In a corner near me there was a tall old man with a long white beard. He wore a strange costume. I had never seen anything like it before. Long ringlets fell to his shoulders, and he wore a tall gray hat, ornamented with green and red feathers. A sheepskin, the woolly side turned inside, was fastened around his body. There were no sleeves to the skin but through two large holes cut beneath the shoulders. His arms were thrust, covered with velvet sleeves, 
which had once been blue in color. Woolen gaiters reached up to his knees, and to hold them in place, a ribbon was interlaced several times round his legs. He sat with his elbow resting on his crossed knees. I had never seen a living person in such a quiet, calm attitude. He looked to me like one of the saints in our church. Lying beside him were three dogs. A white poodle, a black shaggy water dog, and a pretty little grey dog with a sharp, cute little look. The white poodle wore a policeman's old helmet, which was fastened under its chin with a leather strap. While I stared at the man in wonder, Barbarin and the owner of the tavern talked in low voices. I knew that I was the subject of their talk. Barbarin was telling him that he had brought me to the village to take me to the mayor's office, so that the mayor should ask the charity home to pay for my keep. That was all that dear Mother Barbarin had been able to do. But I felt that if Barbarin could get something for keeping me, I had nothing to fear. The old man, who without appearing had evidently been listening, suddenly pointed to me and turning to Barbarin said with a marked foreign accent, Is that the child that's in your way? That's him. And you think the home is going to pay you for his keep? Lord, as he ain't got no parents, and I've been put to great expense for him, it is only right that the town should pay me something. I don't say it isn't. But do you think that just because a thing is right, it's done? That, no. Well, then, I don't think you'll ever get what you're after. Then he goes to the home. There is no law that forces me to keep him in my place if I don't want to. You agreed in the beginning to take him, so it's up to you to keep your promise. Well, I ain't going to keep him, and when I want to turn him out, I'll do so. Perhaps there is a way to get rid of him now said the old man after a moment's thought, and make a little money into the bargain. If you show me how, I'll stand a drink. Order the drinks, the affair is settled. Sure? Sure. The old man got up and took a seat opposite Barbarin. A strange thing, as he rose, I saw his sheepskin move. It was lifted up, and I wondered if he had another dog under his arm. What were they going to do with me? My heart beat against my side. I could not take my eyes off the old man. You won't let this child eat any more of your bread until somebody pays for it. That's it, isn't it? That's it, because... Never mind the reason. 
that don't concern me. Now, if you don't want him, just give him to me. I'll take charge of him. You take charge of him? You want to get rid of him, don't you? Give you a child like him, a beautiful boy, for he is beautiful, the prettiest boy in the village. Look at him. I've looked at him. Remy, come here. I went over to the table, my knees trembling. There, don't be afraid, little one, said the old man. Just look at him, said Barbarin again. I don't say that he is a homely child. If he was, I wouldn't want him. I don't want a monster. Ah, now if he was a monster with two ears or even a dwarf, you'd keep him. You could make your fortune out of a monster. But this little boy is not a dwarf nor a monster, so you can't exhibit him. He's made the same as others. And he is no good for anything. He's good for work. He is not strong. Not strong? Him? Land sakes. He is as strong as any man. Look at his legs. They're that solid. Have you ever seen straighter legs than his? Barbarin pulled up my pants. Too thin, said the old man. And his arms, continued Barbarin, like his legs, might be better. They can't hold out against fatigue and poverty. What? Them legs and arms? See them. Just see for yourself. The old man passed his skinny hand over my legs and felt them, shaking his head the while and making a grimace. I had already seen a similar scene enacted when the cattle dealer came to buy our cow. He also had felt and pinched the cow. He also had shaken his head and said that it was not a good cow. It would be impossible to sell it again. And yet, after all, he had bought it and taken it away with him. Was the old man going to buy me and take me away with him? Oh, Mother Barbarin, Mother Barbarin, if I had dared, I would have said that only the night before Barbarin had reproached me for seeming delicate and having thin arms and legs, but I felt that I should gain nothing by it but an angry word, so I kept silent. For a long time they wrangled over my good and bad points. Well, such as he is, said the old man at last, I'll take him. But mind you, I don't buy him outright. I'll hire him. I'll give you twenty francs a year for him. Twenty francs? That's a good sum, and I'll pay in advance. But if I keep him, the town will pay me more than ten francs a month. I know what you'd get from the town. And besides, you've got to feed him. He will work. If you thought that he could work, 
you wouldn't be so anxious to get rid of him. It is not for the money that's paid for their keep that you people take in lost children. It's for the work that you can get out of them. You make servants of them. They pay you and they themselves get no wages. If this child could have done much for you, you would have kept him. Anyway, I should always have ten francs a month. And if the home, instead of letting you have him, gave him to someone else, you wouldn't get anything at all. Now with me, you won't have to run for your money. All you have to do is to hold out your hand. He pulled a leather purse from his pocket, counting out four silver pieces of money. He threw them down on the table, making them ring as they fell. But think, cried Barbarin, this child's parents will show up one day or the other. What does that matter? Well, those who brought him up will get something. If I hadn't thought of that, I wouldn't have taken him in the first place. Oh, the wicked man. How I did dislike Barbarin. Now, look here. It's because you think his parents won't show up now that you're turning him out, said the old man. Well, if by any chance they do appear, they'll go straight to you, not to me, for nobody knows me. But if it's you who finds them, well, in that case we'll go shares, and I'll put thirty down for him now. Make it forty. No, for what he'll do for me, that isn't possible. What do you want him to do for you? For good legs, he's got good legs. For good arms, he's got good arms. I hold to what I said before. What are you going to do with him? Then the old man looked at Barbarin mockingly, then emptied his glass slowly. He's just to keep me company. I'm getting old, and at night I get a bit lonesome. When one is tired, it's nice to have a child around. Well, for that I'm sure his legs are strong enough. Oh, not too much so, for he must also dance and jump and walk, and then walk and jump again. He'll take his place in Signor Vitalis's traveling company. Where's this company? I am Signor Vitalis, and I'll show you the company right here. With this he opened the sheepskin and took out a strange animal, which he held on his left arm, pressed against his chest. So, this was the animal that had several times raised the sheepskin, but it was not a little dog, as I had thought. I found no name to give to this strange creature, which I saw for the first time. I looked at it in astonishment. It was dressed in a red coat, trimmed with gold braid, but its arms and legs were bare, for they really were arms and legs, and not paws, but they were covered with a black hairy skin. They were not white or pink. The head, which was as large, as a clenched fist was wide and short, 
The turned-up nose had spreading nostrils, and the lips were yellow. But what struck me more than anything were the two eyes, close to each other, which glittered like glass. Oh, the ugly monkey, cried Barbarin. A monkey! I opened my eyes still wider. So this was a monkey! For although I had never seen a monkey, I had heard of them. So this little tiny creature was a monkey. This is the star of my company, said Signor Vitalis. This is Mr. Pretty Heart. Now, Pretty Heart, turning to the animal, make your bow to the society. The monkey put his hand to his lips and threw a kiss to each of us. Now, continued Signor Vitalis, holding out his hand to the white poodle. The next, Signor Capi will have the honor of introducing his friends to the esteemed company here present. The poodle, who up till this moment had not made a movement, jumped up quickly and standing on his hind paws, crossed his forepaws on his chest and bowed to his master so low that his police helmet touched the ground. This polite duty accomplished, he turned to his companions, and with one paw still pressed on his chest, he made a sign with the other for them to draw nearer. The two dogs, whose eyes had been fixed on the white poodle, got up at once, and giving each one of us his paw, shook hands, as one does in polite society, and then taking a few steps back, bowed to us in turn. The one I call Capi, said Signor Vitalis, which is an abbreviation of Capitano in Italian, is the chief. He is the most intelligent, and he conveys my orders to the others. The black-haired young daddy is Signor Serabino, which signifies the sport. Notice him, and I am sure you will admit that the name is very appropriate. And the young person with a modest air is Miss Dulce. She is English, and her name is chosen on account of her sweet disposition. With this remarkable actress, I traveled through the country, earning my living. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. It is a matter of luck. Copy. The poodle crossed his paws. Copy, come here and be on your best behavior. These people are well brought up, and they must be spoken to with great politeness. Be good enough to tell this little boy, who is looking at you with such big round eyes, what time it is. Capian crossed his paws, went up to his master, drew aside the sheepskin, and after feeling in his vest pocket, pulled out a large silver watch. He looked at the watch for a moment, then gave two distinct barks, then after these two decisive sharp barks, he uttered three little barks, not so loud, not so clear. The hour was quarter of three. Very good, said Vitalis. Thank you, Signor Capi. 
And now ask Miss Dorsey to oblige us by dancing with a skipping rope. Cappy again felt in his master's vest pocket and pulled out a cord. He made a brief sign to Zerbino, who immediately took his position opposite to him. Then Cappy threw him one end of the cord, and they both began to turn it very gravely. Then Dulcy jumped lightly into the rope, and with her beautiful soft eyes fixed on her master, began to skip. You see how intelligent they are, said Vitalis. The intelligence would be even more appreciated if I drew comparisons. For instance, if I had a fool to act with them. That is why I want your boy. He is to be the fool so that the dog's intelligence will stand out in a more marked manner. Oh, he is to be the fool, interrupted Barberin. It takes a clever man to play the fool, said Vitalis. The boy will be able to act the part with a few lessons. We'll test him at once. If he has any intelligence, he will understand that with me, he will be able to see the country and other countries besides. But if he stays here, all he can do is to drive a herd of cattle in the same fields from morning to night. If he hasn't any intelligence, he'll cry and stamp his feet, and then I won't take him with me, and he'll be sent to the foundling's home, where he'll have to work hard and have little to eat. I had enough intelligence to know this. The dogs were very funny, and it would be fun to be with them always. But Mother, Mother Barberin, I could not leave her. Then, if I refused, perhaps I should not stay with Mother Barberin. I might be sent to the home. I was very unhappy, and as my eyes filled with tears, Signor Vitalis stepped me gently on the cheek. Ah, the little chap understands, because he does not make a great noise. He is arguing the matter in his little head. And tomorrow... Oh, sir, I cried, let me stay with Mother Barberin. Please let me stay. I could not say more, for Capi's loud barking interrupted me. At the same moment, the dog sprang towards the table upon which Pretty Heart was seated. The monkey... Profiting by the moment when everyone was occupied with me, had quickly seized his master's glass, which was full of wine, and was about to empty it. But Cappy, who was a good watchdog, had seen the monkey's treat, and like the faithful servant that he was, he had foiled him. Mr. Pretty Heart, said Vitalis severely, you are a glutton and a thief. Go over there into the corner and turn your face to the wall. And you, Zerbino, keep guard. If he moves, give him a good slap. As to you, Mr. Cappy, you're a good dog. Give me your paw. 
I'd like to shake hands with you. The monkey, uttering little stifled cries, obeyed and went into the corner. And the dog, proud and happy, held out his paw to his master. Now, continued Vitalis, back to business. I'll give you thirty francs for him then. No, forty. A discussion commenced, but Vitalis soon stopped it by saying, This doesn't interest the child. Let him go outside and play. At the same time, he made a sign to Barberin. Yes, go out into the yard at the back, but don't move, or you'll have me to reckon with. I could not but obey. I went into the yard, but I had no heart to play. I sat down on a big stone and waited. They were deciding what was to become of me. What would it be? They talked for a long time. I sat waiting, and it was an hour later when Barbarin came out into the yard. He was alone. Had he come to fetch me, to hand me over to Vitalis? Come, he said, back home. Home? Then I was not to leave Mother Barberin. I wanted to ask questions, but I was afraid, because he seemed in a very bad temper. We walked all the way home in silence. But just before we arrived home, Barberin who was walking ahead, stopped. You know, he said, taking me roughly by the ear, if you say one single word of what you have heard today, you shall smart for it. Understand? Chapter 4. <clears throat> the Maternal House Well, asked Mother Barberin when we entered, what did the mayor say? We didn't see him. How? You didn't see him? No. I met some friends at another dumb cafe, and when we came out, it was too late. So we'll go back tomorrow. So Barbaran had given up the idea of driving a bargain with the men with the dogs. On the way home, I wondered if this was not some trick of his, returning to the house. But his last words drove all my doubts away. As we had to go back to the village the next day to see the mayor, it was certain that Barberin had not accepted Vitalis's terms. But in spite of his threats, I would have spoken of my fears to Mother Barberin if I could have found myself alone for one moment with her. But all the evening Barberin did not leave the house, and I went to bed without getting the opportunity. I went to sleep thinking that I would tell her the next day. But the next day, when I got up, I did not see her. As I was running all around the house looking for her, Barberin saw me and asked me what I wanted. Mama. She has gone to the village and won't be back till this afternoon. She had not told me the night before that she was going to the village, and without knowing why, I began to feel anxious. 
Why didn't she wait for us if we were going in the afternoon? Would she be back before we started? Without knowing quite why, I began to feel very frightened, and Barbarin looked at me in a way that did not tend to reassure me. To escape from his look, I ran into the garden. Our garden meant a great deal to us. In it, we grew almost all that we ate. Potatoes, cabbages, carrots, turnips. There was no ground wasted. Yet Mother Barbaran had given me a little patch all to myself, in which I had planted ferns and herbs that I had pulled up in the lanes while I was minding the cow. I had planted everything pell-mell, one beside the other, in my bit of garden. It was not beautiful, but I loved it. It was mine. I arranged it as I wished, just as I felt at the time. And when I spoke of it, which happened twenty times a day, it was my garden. Already the jonquils were in bud, and the lilac was beginning to shoot, and the wallflowers would soon be out. How would they bloom? I wondered, and that was why I came to see them every day. But there was another part of my garden that I studied with great anxiety. I had planted a vegetable that someone had given to me, and which was almost unknown in our village. It was Jerusalem artichokes. I was told they would be delicious, better than potatoes, for they had the taste of French artichokes, potatoes and turnips combined. Having been told this, I intended them to be a surprise for Mother Barbarin. I had not breathed a word about this present I had for her. I planted them in my own bit of garden. When they began to shoot, I would let her think that they were flowers. Then, one fine day when they were ripe, while she was out, I would pull them up and cook them myself. How? I was not quite sure, but I didn't worry over such a small detail. Then, when she returned to supper, I would serve her a dish of Jerusalem artichokes. It would be something fresh to replace those everlasting potatoes, and Mother Barbarin would not suffer too much from the sale of poor Rosette. And the inventor of this new dish of vegetables was I, Remy. I was the one. So I was of some use in the house. With such a plan in my head, I had to bestow careful attention on my Jerusalem artichokes. Every day I looked at the spot where I had planted them. It seemed to me that they would never grow. I was kneeling on both knees on the ground, supported on my hands, with my nose almost touching the earth where the artichokes were sown, when I heard Barbaran calling me impatiently. I hurried back to the house. Imagine my surprise when I saw, standing before the fireplace, Vitalis and his dogs. 
I knew at once what Barbarand wanted of me. Vitalis had come to fetch me, and it was so that Mother Barbarand should not stop me from going that Barbarand had sent her to the village. Knowing full well that I could expect nothing from Barbarand, I ran up to Vitalis. Oh, don't take me away. Please, sir, don't take me away. I began to sob. Now, little chap, he said, kindly enough, you won't be unhappy with me. I don't whip children, and you'll have the dogs for company. Why should you be sorry to go with me? Mother Barberin! Anyhow, you're not going to stay here, said Barberin roughly, taking me by the ear. Go with this gentleman, or go to the workhouse, choose. No, no, mama, mama. So you're going to make me mad, eh? cried Barberin. I'll beat you good and hard and chase you out of the house. The child is sorry to leave his mama. Don't beat him for that. He's got feelings. That's a good sign. If you pity him, he'll cry all the more. Well, now to business. Saying that, Vitalis laid eight five-franc pieces on the table, which Barberin, with a sweep of his hand, cleared up and thrust into his pocket. Where is his bundle? asked Vitalis. Here it is, said Barberin, handing him a blue cotton handkerchief, tied up at the four corners. There are two shirts and a pair of cotton pants. That was not what was agreed. You said you'd give some clothes. These are only rags. He ain't got no more. If I ask the boy I know, he'll say that's not true. But I haven't the time to argue the matter. We must be off. Come on, my little fellow. What's your name? Remy. Well then, Remy. Take your bundle and walk along beside Capi. I held out both my hands to him, then to Barberin, but both men turned away their heads. Then Vitalis took me by the wrist. I had to go. Ah, oh, our poor little house. It seemed to me when I passed over the threshold that I left a bit of my body there. With my eyes full of tears, I looked around but there was no one near to help me. No one on the road and no one in the field close by. I began to call, Mama, Mother Barberin. But no one replied to my call and my voice trailed it off into a sob. I had to follow Vitalis, who had not let go of my wrist. Goodbye and good luck, cried Barberin. Then he entered the house. It was over. Come, Remy. Hurry along, my child, said Vitalis. He took hold of my arm, and I walked side by side with him. Fortunately, he didn't walk fast. I think he suited his step to mine. We were walking up the hill. As I turned, 
I could still see Mother Barbaran's house, but it was getting smaller and smaller. Many a time I had walked this road, and I knew that for a little while longer I should still see the house. Then, when we turned the bend, I should see it no more. Before me the unknown, behind me was the house, where until that day I had lived such a happy life. Perhaps I should never see it again. Fortunately, the hill was long, but at last we reached the top. Vitalis had not let go his hold. Will you let me rest a bit, I asked. Surely, my boy, he replied. He let go of me, but I saw him make a sign to Capi, and the dog understood. He came close to me. I knew that Capi would grab me by the leg if I attempted to escape. I went up a high grassy mound and sat down, the dog beside me. With tear-dimmed eyes, I looked about for Mother Barbaran's cottage. Below was the valley and the wood, and away in the distance stood the little house I had left. Little puffs of yellow smoke were coming out of the chimney, going straight up in the sky and then on towards us. In spite of the distance and the height, I could see everything very clearly. On the rubbish heap I could see our big fat hen running about, but she didn't look as big as usual. If I had not known that it was our hen, I should have taken her for a little pigeon. At the side of the house, I could see the twisted pear tree that I used to ride as a horse. In the stream, I could just make out the drain that I had had so much trouble in digging, so that it would work a mill made by my own hands. The wheel, alas, had never turned despite all the hours I had spent upon it. I could see my garden. Oh, my dear garden. Who would see my flowers bloom? And my Jerusalem artichokes, who would tend them? Barbaran, perhaps. That wicked Barbaran. With the next step, my garden would be hidden from me. Suddenly, on the road which led to our house from the village, I saw a white sunbonnet. Then it disappeared behind some trees. Then it came in view again. The distance was so great that I could only see a white top, like a spring butterfly. It was going in and out among the trees. But there is a time when the heart sees better and farther than the sharpest eyes. I knew it was Mother Barbaran. It was she. I was sure of it. Well, asked Vitalis, shall we go on now? Oh, sir, no, please, no. Then it is true what they say. You haven't any legs, tired out already. That doesn't promise very good days for us. 
I did not reply. I was looking. It was Mother Barbarin. It was her bonnet. It was her blue skirt. She was walking quickly as though she was in a hurry to get home. When she got to our gate, she pushed it open and went quickly up the garden path. I jumped up at once and stood up on the bank without giving a thought to Cappy, who sprang towards me. Mother Barbarin did not stay long in the house. She came out and began running to and fro in the yard with her arms stretched out. She was looking for me. I leaned forwards, and at the top of my voice I cried, Mama, Mama! But my cry could not reach her. It was lost in the air. What's the matter? Have you gone crazy? asked Vitalis. I did not reply. My eyes were still fixed on Mother Barbarin. But she did not look up, for she did not know that I was there above her. She went round the garden, then out into the road, looking up and down. I cried louder, but like my first call, it was useless. Then Vitalis understood, and he also came up on the bank. It did not take him long to see the figure with a white sunbonnet. Poor little chap, he said softly to himself. Oh, I sobbed, encouraged by his words of pity. Do let me go back. But he took me by the wrist and drew me down and onto the road. As you are now rested, he said, we'll move on. I tried to free myself, but he held me firmly. Copy. Terbino, he said, looking at the dogs. The two dogs came close to me. Capi behind, Terbino in front. After taking a few steps, I turned round. We had passed the bend of the hill, and I could no longer see the valley, nor our house.